Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. Shachtan, an Indo Askeliga. Time in Mon Iruk the Yen of Chacht Erechor. Agasuligum a Makan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfin. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nachvetok, Ara, Igornamion, and Kestin Echo. Vientolum again omgrev or corn rachtum. Yatakshatorin Graven or Corson, Elistuhalagus Gimina Fracht, Gorokligs or Dukashin Echor. Only Venown, Thordorakshin. Shachten. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. The Big Tech Podcast, in proud association with Magnet Networks, connecting businesses virtually anywhere in Ireland. Hello and you're welcome to The Big Tech Show with me, Adrian Weckler, the tech editor of the Irish and Sunny Independent. And I'm absolutely delighted to say that we have a fantastic guest uh, this week. It's Xander Lurie, who's chief executive of SurveyMonkey. Now, you know SurveyMonkey. It's almost certain that you've done a survey with SurveyMonkey uh, at one point or another. It has about 16 million users, has, I'm trying to, uh, 670,000 paying customers at the moment, has a $2 billion market cap on the NASDAQ and a growing office here in Dublin and some news for its Irish offices. And before we start, I should say that this podcast is sponsored by Magnet Networks, which connects businesses virtually anywhere in Ireland. And we thank Magnet for their sponsorship. I just want to ask you about something I'm sure you've been asked about many times before, and that is how you came into the role of chief executive of SurveyMonkey, because the last chief executive, uh, the last long-term uh, chief executive, was Dave Girl Goldberg, who was a friend of yours. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me, Adrian. It's a pleasure to be with you and your uh, your audience here. So I first became affiliated with SurveyMonkey way back in 2009. Uh, as you mentioned, Dave Goldberg was a dear friend of mine, a person I'd known for 10 years at the time. Um, he was evaluating different opportunities and partnered with a couple of different private equity firms to buy SurveyMonkey when it just had about 12 employees, but was generating $25 million of revenue. So I had heard of it just because I, like everybody else, had taken surveys. And it was an unlikely candidate. Dave had spent years in the media career. So he asked me to join the board, which I had the pleasure of doing in 2009, and then kind of sat shotgun with him as he grew this into a global web-scaled business. Uh, we were on vacation in Mexico in May of 2015, and suddenly, tragically, Dave died of a heart attack at the age of 47. So the board asked me to step in as kind of interim uh, chairman for the summer, uh, helped kind of counsel the team, approve some budgets, and then lead the search for a new CEO. Uh, we were successful in recruiting a really world-class uh, executive, but it just didn't work out with him and, and the team. Uh, he stayed just for a few months, and then the board asked me to take the role on full-time in January of 16, which I accepted. Now, I think most people remember the passing of Dave Goldberg. I, don't, I can't recall in the last 10 or 20 years anything like the outpouring of uh, emotion and grief for the passing of a single executive. You might say maybe Steve Jobs or, or somebody like that. Almost all of our listeners will know that uh, Dave Goldberg, uh, partner of Sheryl Sandberg, 
um, who was who led a survey monkey and who who did dry, di, drive uh, died tragically. Um, I mean, Bono and you two turned up at the funeral, sang one. I remember it, it all at the time. From your position, you were a, a really good friend of his. What was it like for you? What were the challenges for you in trying to step into that role after he he passed away? Yeah, I mean, it was there were a ton of challenges. Um, you know, just kind of hair goes on the back of my neck just thinking about that time and thinking about Dave. Uh, my dad passed away when I was 23, but Dave's passing was probably the most significant life you know, crisis or moment I'd had just suffering loss like that with somebody who was so young and still in the prime of his career and had two young children. Um, I was a first-time CEO. Uh, I was taking over a company that, you know, had really been whipsawed around in 2015 with Dave's passing. And people, after mourning, start to ask questions about their own career and the direction of the company. So I was definitely taking on a role where I felt challenged. I felt like I really needed to show up and deliver my best, but I think I was fortunate to have the counsel of Cheryl and other board members who were super supportive and good mentors of mine. Uh, I was fortunate to inherit a senior management team that had benefited from Dave's teaching and mentorship and the culture that he instilled at the company. And I had my own ideas on, on what we needed to do to get back on offense. So I spent some time doing kind of a short listening tour, uh, but then I very quickly needed to make some strategic moves and make some decisions to let people know that I had my hands on the wheel and we were going to be fine and they were looking to me for that kind of leadership and I'm sure I didn't do everything right but I'm thrilled with the execution that we've had to get us to where we are today. How, how did you find Silicon Valley as a community, the tech community, particularly in California at that time? It seemed to me at the time that it did pull together and there was a community spirit, something that's not always apparent at different times of the year. Is, is that, does that sound right? Yeah, I think Silicon Valley is under duress a little bit right now. There's um, some criticism, which is fair. Um, the world is looking for the Valley to have more leadership because tech has such a disproportionate share of not only market cap, but you know, big companies now are just so important in the world because of their reach, their audience, the, the scale. So the, you know, the Valley has a bigger spot on the stage and needs to take responsibility. I was fortunate in part because of my relationship with Dave and Cheryl and others that we do have an unbelievably supportive community of leaders who look to each other for ideas and uh, ways to support each other. When Dave passed away, I asked you know, two dozen of his friends and my friends to step up and be mentors and connect them with people at SurveyMonkey. Um, when I started as CEO, one of the first things I did was launch a speaker series called the Goldie Speaker Series, named after Dave. Uh, you know, he celebrated people and ideas. So every month we bring in a leader, a CEO, a philanthropist, entertainer, author, politician to come speak to our company and just a fireside chat where I ask him or her questions. So I do feel a lot of support that I get support, that the company gets support. We try and help each other, uh, share best practices, good ideas. Um, but the, you know, with, with wealth and, and, power and influence, these companies have to bear more responsibility in terms of good policy and philanthropy, and and we've got a lot of problems to work through. I mean, there's lots to talk about. We could spend an entire podcast uh, talking about some of those issues. I will ask you about one or two of them. Before I do, in that context, what you've just said, do you You've worked, you've worked across a number of different industries. You're now in tech. You worked in media and CBS Interactive as well. And then you worked in finance in what we call Wall Street uh, before that. 
is there much of a difference? Uh, the impression we have with Wall Street, for example, that it's all cutthroat. There's very little space for emotion or community that ultimately there's sharks. And if you're out, you're out. And if somebody, if something happens to somebody, it's it's unfortunate, but people move on very quickly. Have you, have you noticed any difference between that community and the tech community in the, the decade or the more that you've been in it? Sure, yeah. I worked in Wall Street from uh, 2000 to 2006. I think J.P. Morgan is a stellar institution, and I've learned a lot from Jamie Dimon as well. I think the world has changed a bit where people are bringing their whole selves to work more often. And I think largely because of the internet and because of our phones and because you're somewhat always on in our industry, tech, finance, media, people are responsive and they're communicating in ways and during hours that they never were before. So there is the sense of, I have more ownership, I have more autonomy, I can work on my own times, but you're also more accountable for being available. So, you know, we are very much trying to instill a culture where people can manage their own time off, people can come and go take care of, of kids or sick parents. You know, we don't have time punches when you come in and out of the office. But you also need to help people understand, you know, when to be available, when to be accountable, what to ask for their colleagues. But I, I find that we're trying to very much um, not grind people, work them to the bone. That the way you get the most productivity and value out of people is to treat them like people, to respect their time, their interest, let them bring their interest to work, bring your kids to work, celebrate your other activities, and people will find the right mix. I'm sure the same thing is going. I haven't worked on Wall Street and. 13 years. I'm sure the same thing is going on. Maybe not to the same extent. You know, the Valley and, and tech do tend to be a bit avant-garde with our policies and benefits. And, you know, we test and learn. It's part of the engineering culture of experimentation. Yeah. I, I mean, there's, again, a whole panoply of questions I could ask about the evolution of leadership now. But you as a leader of, you know, a world-renowned tech company, SurveyMonkey, and we will get into some of the specifics of, of what the company's doing in a minute. Um, do you... Uh, perceive any differences in the requirements of you, the leadership role that you have, things that you're expected to say, things you're expected to do, the way you're supposed to treat people, the positions you're supposed to take on, on issues, even current affairs issues and news issues. It does seem that the role of somebody who is now the public face of a big tech company has to be much more aware of what's going on and take positions on things. Do, do you feel that at all? I do. I do feel that. I think... Um it's unobjectionable to say that today in London, in Dublin, in New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, we are competing in the most fierce competitive labor market in the history of humankind. So in tech, finance, media, you know, again, industries where there's constant change, dynamic change, tons of capital being put into the system to try and disrupt and drive innovation that human capital is the most competitive resource. And the truth is that we do not have patents that protect our business. We do not have exclusive contracts which protect our business. We do not have the traditional moats you read about in business school 30 years ago. What we have are incredible people who design, code, ship, sell, service our customers. And my ability to help recruit world-class people, enable them to collaborate and, and have a shared sense of of purpose and winning um, is what will differentiate us from any of our competitors. And to the extent that my leadership inspires people to recruit their friends who are who are also excellent and work smarter and be more creative, um, I believe that our mission, our culture, our values are fundamental to making that happen. So, 
yeah, I do feel the need to um, speak out on issues I care about. Um, you know, I'm not a, I'm not necessarily an activist, but I'm a human being, and I'm not shy about issues that. I mean, that used to be a dangerous thing for sure. a company leader to do to try and take a position yeah. on something, and you you see it today on other issues. Uh, Mark Benioff, for example, is very very vocal on the issue <laughs> yes. of homelessness, and that there was a divide in the tech community over that, and it they man the industry managed to keep a lid on it. The vote was had, yeah. it, it was passed. I probably Benioff was very. Uh, very influential in, in during that process. He's influential in anything he does. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I think those issues, that one was a pretty controversial issue because the other side had arguments as well. But mm -hmm. on issues, especially where our government or our president um, is taking a position that we find counter to our values, that we find affecting our employees, uh, the immigrant stance the, the president has taken, we find objectionable. The, you know, how children have been treated in, at the border, we find objectionable. So there are a number of issues where I'm a human being. I have a social media voice, and when I'm uh, when I feel the need to speak out, um, I will. And if you know, if, if some some of our team finds that objectionable, they can speak out, and we're open. So we celebrate curiosity, and and everybody's voice is as valuable as mine internally. So, but you know, companies do have a big responsibility. We have a lot of power because we can get stuff done. And I think the government in the states has largely been proven pretty ineffective at moving the ball forward in ways that we can because capitalism pr produces profitability and money and people's time can make stuff happen and, and we try and make stuff happen. Do you think that talented executives or workers or engineers will make a decision sometimes on who to work for based on the values or based on what they hear or see the company leadership doing on some of those issues that you raise? Oh, for sure. If you're a talented 24-year-old data scientist, product marketer, engineer, salesperson, you have a wealth of choices. And, you know, I feel like while Airbnb and Pinterest and Slack don't have competitive products to SurveyMonkey, we're competing with them and Splunk and Zoom and Uber every day for recruiting these folks. And I think people are looking for a big challenge to work on. They're looking for a path to growth in their career. They're looking for financial rewards, but they're also looking to do my values align with the executive team? Does the mission resonate with me? Will I be proud to tell my grandmother that I work at this company? One of the issues that you have spoken about quite a bit is diversity. Um, in terms of mentoring, uh, you take a big interest in gender equality, uh, particularly in the tech industry. I've written a bit about this in the past, and one thing that has struck me over the years is as much as many initiatives that are there, it does still seem that the vast majority of people at the top, chief executives, there are loads of CMOs, COOs, C CFOs who are female executives, very high performing uh, executives. But when it comes to CEOs and founders, the vast majority that are getting funded in the, at the top are still men. You're a man. I mean, I'm a man as well. Um, for all of this initiative and all of this work, you're still, you're still the guy in the hot seat. So I, I'm wondering how, what it is, what's going to happen that is going to result in the, that next step where we see more women, for example, in the CE, CEO role? Yeah, I mean, I, I can speak to what we're doing. Um, you know, half, <coughs> excuse me, half of our board uh, is men, half our board is women. I think the first thing you can do as a CEO, whether you're a man or a woman, is build a board of directors that represents the best that you can be. And as I think about our thousand employees across the world, I think they look up to our board and say that's a representation of our ownership. The board represents the shareholders of SurveyMonkey. And if the CEO doesn't have the ability to 
to mold that group into one that represents the company well, then shame on him or her. And so, you know, when I look at our board, we have five men and five women, some of the brightest operators in the world, people who bring a, a diverse, not only gender and race, but diversity of opinion and voices. And we come to the room to to really represent SurveyMonkey and our employees well. And then the same thing with our senior executive leadership teams, five men and five women across the board, um, you know, diversity of voices and opinions that represent the team well. And as I look across, you know, our employee base, about 47% women. So I, I think they're, you know, for folks that say we have a pipeline problem, I think it's BS. I think you've got to sometimes work harder, interview more people, look deeper. The talent is there. And it's sometimes not, you know, within five miles of your, your campus. But when you go and recruit and spend the time, you will find talented African-Americans, talented women who can step up and serve in those C-suite positions. And while they're not in the CEO role at SurveyMonkey today, they will be, I'm sure. Mm. Yeah, I've spoken a fair bit to Sarah Fryer, who's an Irish woman. She was. She's a dynamo. Yeah, you, you know her. I do. Okay, yeah. It's, she, was, she was at Square. For any listeners who aren't aware of Sarah, um, I've, you can look on independent.e. We've interviewed her a few times. She's now the CEO at Nextdoor. Seems to be doing a, a great job there. She's on the board of Slack as well. She's on the board of Slack. Yeah, she's killing it. Um, Stuart from Slack, Stuart Butterfield, comes over here about once a year. Anytime he comes over here, I have to... Just a little casual pause here for listeners. Um, Xander's looking nice and refreshed. Every time Stuart comes, he looks wrecked. He looks knackered. He does. He he schedules his interview tour to literally with an hour when he gets off the plane from an overnight, and looks like he's been out all night partying. Um, I don't know why that came into my head. Uh, seeing as you mentioned Slack, when you're uh, growing at ninety uh, percent a year or whatever the growth rate is, I'm sure it takes its toll. But yeah, uh, I he's, don't he's think he gets to sleep on a plane on on the way over. Um, Let's talk a little bit about SurveyMonkey in Europe and in Ireland. You've got an office here in Ireland. You've about 60 people here, is that right? Yeah, 60 people and uh, growing quickly. We're actively looking for space. You're actively looking for space. Now, you mentioned to me before we came on air that you, some of the, those people are actually coming from the States yeah. over to here. This has been a uh, popular destination for folks in our Portland office, our San Mateo office, uh, even our Ottawa office. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people look at what we're doing here in Dublin and using this as a hub to kind of lead our whole European expansion. You know, there are a ton of talented people here. It's a fun city. It's a great opportunity for company, somebody to come spend a couple of years in product or marketing sales. So this is, uh, I think we're having to hold people back from, from wanting to get on the planes. That's interesting. Is it hard to establish somebody in Ireland from the U.S. or from Canada? I haven't done it myself, but uh, the reviews from our teams have been pretty good. I, I can think of two examples where people had a bit of a delay um, getting the government to approve it. But um, mm-hmm. no, by and large, people have had a pretty seamless move, and, and the experience is here. We've had people now serve their tours and come back, and mm-hmm. uh, they've raved about it. In fact, they're helping spread the viral word about head to Dublin. That's interesting. Uh, it, heartening to hear from an industrial point of view here. Does... You've you've an office in Amsterdam as well, is that right? Yeah, we just made an acquisition uh, of a company that we announced in April called Usabilla. Yeah. yeah, so they're an Amsterdam-based company, terrific leadership team, 130 people globally, uh, about 95 of whom sit in Amsterdam. Okay, I was going to ask with an office in Dublin and an office in Amsterdam, do you think that the this, the whole Brexit process at the moment is going to have any impact operationally for SurveyMonkey or in any other way? 
You know, we don't. Uh, we have a small office in London. Uh, we have a nice UK customer base. <clears throat> We're evaluating the situation as it relates to our expansion and how we serve our customers. Um, just spent the day in London yesterday. It's a mess. I mean, if it dominates the news cycles as it has for three years now. So. I think it's something you need to be cognizant of. We don't have a big operation there, but I think we're we're thrilled to be doing more business in Dublin and Amsterdam, partly as a result that it's just difficult to navigate the UK market. Yeah. So SurveyMonkey acquired Usabilla. Um, I think it was around $80 million, Correct. something around that, that. Is the plan to keep acquiring uh, businesses with a view to establishing, to just keep building uh, on that uh, dominant position, is that what you'll do going forward? So I, I do um, aspire to grow this business organically and inorganically. And when you think about how we view our M&A pipeline, the lens we look through is how do we leverage this massive base of users you mentioned is now over 17 million active users, 670,000 paid users. Those people sit inside of 350,000 different organizations. So we have paying customers who work inside of hundreds of thousands of companies, including 98% of the Fortune 500 paying customers in 190 countries. So as we think about our ability to introduce those curious people who are using our software to collect feedback and deliver better insights, how can we introduce them to new opportunities, new ways to drive value? Usability was a key solution that we didn't have. Um, they're building a world-class base of enterprise logos, highly trafficked websites that need to collect feedback. Um, that really is the lens through which can we use this massive scale we have, this massive brand we have, to upsell and introduce new pieces of high-value software solutions to drive value for our customers. And I do imagine that we will continue to be acquisitive. Right now, I want to make sure we integrate and do a great job with, with this first one. And does that reflect an era that we're entering where some have made the argument, a lot of journalists in the New York Times, for example, make an argument that the, the golden age of disruption in the tech industry may be over or the, the most disruptive years may be behind us and we're now settling into a pattern of more of a mature pattern of industry where you have category leaders in each um, in each section whether it's Facebook or Google maybe even SurveyMonkey and that the way to get there is just to grow very very quickly whether it's through organic or in, in inorganic means acquisitions etc and then it's much much harder to dislodge companies would you hold with that? Uh, no, I, I think that argument holds some water, but I think I'll take the flip side first, which is it's never been easier to launch disruptive businesses. And the reason is, first, if you're a talented business person, team, raising capital is relatively easy today. If you have good ideas, those ideas can be seen by good investors, by angel investors, by venture capitalists, strategic investors, easier than they ever have been, you know. That's part of what the internet's so good at. There's now such powerful off-the-shelf software, whether you're using AWS or you're buying AdWords for customer acquisition or you're using social Facebook to, to build your brand. There are ways to get on the map to get seen by your audiences, by your prospective customers that have never been available to companies prior. But isn't the point, and I'm just paraphrasing what a lot of what this the, the counter-argument says, that even if this startup founder does all of that and creates this fantastic nascent business that because of the giants that are there now it has never been more difficult to get from you know 50 million dollars to five billion dollars because if you if your business really is good there's an overwhelming chance now that you'll just be you know acquired or in the case depending on what segment you're in crushed 
So, I mean, you can be crushed if you have a weak business model, but if you have an excellent business model, when I say excellent, I mean, do you have unit economics which can sustain profitable growth? Are you selling something for more than it costs you to make and you can reinvest those profits to continue to grow? If you have one of those self-fulfilling, propelling business models, you will have multiple options at your disposal. Yes, you might be able to sell to one of the giants you named, but you're also going to have a lot of access to growth capital in which there's never been more tens of billions of dollars seeking those kinds of growth opportunities. So I do think the, the multi-hundred billion dollar large internet software companies are going to be acquisitive. But if you're a, if you're a good business, that's, that's great to have multiple options at your disposal. Mm. I mean, I was thinking of uh, the, the, the companies that are most cited here are companies like Facebook. Whenever Snapchat introduces a new uh, service, Facebook just borrows from it, builds something um, uh, similar, and essentially crushes uh, a Snap, not crushes, but you know, keeps Snapchat uh, in its spot. I'm not sure if that has ever happened to you in survey. We attract competition for sure. You know, we have a business that has 80% plus gross margins and profitable businesses do attract competition. You've seen some smaller players grow. You know, it's on us to continue to deliver better features, better value, better integrations with Salesforce and Microsoft for our customers at price points where they still want to use our product. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's the nature of capitalism that if you have a good business, it will attract competition. It might attract uh, buyers, but this isn't a, you know, they can't compel you to sell your, 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 your right. business. And you've often seen the world's biggest companies try and compete with with startups and you know not do well, right? Dropbox was written off a hundred times. Dropbox is a ten billion dollar business. Mm -hmm. You know, Nextdoor was supposed to never present a threat to Facebook. Nextdoor has every neighborhood in the world on Nextdoor. And Snap, while maybe Facebook or Instagram did present some competitive threats, is still a multi billion dollar company that employs thousands of people. So if you have a good business with good unit economics, you can thrive and you can raise capital from other sources. Fair point. Um, SurveyMonkey is sometimes still, I still hear it being referred to as a startup, even though it's 20 years old. Um, is, is, is there a time limit for being called a startup? I don't know. It's a great industry? question. You know, I think we, because our brand has a fun name, uh, because our products are really easy to use, you know, don't confuse that with our products not being very powerful. Our products are used by the most discerning companies in the world to collect the most mission-critical data about what's going on inside their companies, how their HR policies are making underrepresented groups feel, using it to do pricing analysis on, on competitive products, which campaigns to launch, which media messages are going to resonate. So, you know, our products are, are used by really sophisticated enterprises, but we have a fun logo. It's a name that people know quite well. Uh, we just recently went public in 2018, so maybe you have to be traded on the NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange for longer. And the fact that you are traded on the NASDAQ means that the next question I'm going to ask you is probably very unlikely. But as you get deeper into the enterprise ecosystem, would you have ever considered tweaking that name, SurveyMonkey? Um, was that ever <laughs> You know, the SurveyMonkey name is, is so well known, I think it would, it would cost billions of dollars of marketing dollars to displace it. Um, you know, our search engine optimization is so strong because our products work and people know the name. You know, we acquire 80% of our paid customers via a free channel. So you're going to send a, a survey, I hope, to your millions of listeners and ask them, you know. Millions. What, yes. What millions. guests they want to, this, this program is listened to around the world. What guests people want to hear from or how they'd like you to change, you know, the program or what time they want to hear it. Um, when people see your survey and answer those questions, at the end of the survey, they have a good impression of, of Adrian and they have a good impression of SurveyMonkey. And when they need to send a survey, it attracts them back. So the inherent viral 
nature of our of our business really bodes well for the brand. But you'll see us launch new brands, new products, different features, different personas on top of Serving Monkey, and that's you know our marketing team's always hard at work growth testing the right the right way to go to market. And at this point, we'd like to remind you, listen to the Big Tech Podcast sponsored by Magnet Networks, which we thank, which connects businesses virtually anywhere in Ireland. One of my colleagues, Michael Cogley, who uh, is a business journalist for the Sunday Independent, when he heard that I was going to be interviewing you, he, he begged me to ask you um, whether you thought that surveys in general and polls and questionnaires were doing anything, were diluting the quality of public discourse in any way because they can sometimes have an outsized influence on uh, you know, uh, how people talk of, about things and on the trends, the narratives that make it in, into the press. Did that ever cross your mind? Yeah, I mean, Michael, if you're listening, it's, it's a great question. I think if we've learned anything from global politics, Brexit, what's going on in the States right now, what's going on in the entertainment industry, it's that people's voices matter people's opinions matter. I think it's why our brand is so strong is that our software sits between one human being asking another human being for her opinion and people want to share their voices. So what we try and do really well is make our products elegant, easy to use, have the software load quickly, the mobile device, you can you can answer a survey in seconds or minutes. And if you ask questions in the right framework with the right tone, you can elicit the kind of sentiment and opinions that gives you really good data. And then it's on journalists to report out that data in a way that people understand. And if you misuse the data, it hurts your credibility. So I, I believe that mm. people are, are gleaning insights and, and data from their surveys that lead them to better outcomes, better better investments, better decisions. There's a, well, there's a, certainly a massive amount of data from uh, surveys, which... Over 20 million questions are answered on our platform every day. 20 million. That's a lot of data. It's a lot of information. However, you having worked in the media business at a time when it was probably more profitable than it is now will know that uh, a journalist who sees a a survey or a poll is as likely just to report the top line from that because um, just they may not have the resources to spend more than 30 minutes uh, looking at it. Um, From your position having straddled all of those industries and particularly media and tech is there any is there anything any magic bullet you can see for the media industry uh, over the next decade obviously publishers like the new york times are doing very well uh, for in subscription terms other public other publishers like buzzfeed are struggling now with their uh, free model um but seeing a survey monkey is essentially a feedback uh, a service. Is there is there anything that has occurred to you that the media business is doing right or wrong at the moment? I think it's a great question. I don't have all the answers. Um, you have seen the advent of the web and social media put a, a damper on the kinds of media models that are working. But as you mentioned, the New York Times is thriving right now. I think there is a dearth of quality in the market and there has been a glut of people just repurposing, scraping headlines over time, the fullness of time, usually quality wins. Now, it can be a painful, disruptive five-year or 10-year uh, kind of dislocation period, and I think we have come through that. But if you're doing quality journalism, if you're building your brand on, on trust and integrity and you're getting 
word of mouth growth to your newsletter or your your journal or your publication, I think over time there is a business model. Now, there may have just been too many publications, too many journalists. And when everybody looks around saying, where's the money? Well, there's money there. It just, it's, it's spread too thinly. Mm. And people have multiple subscriptions already. I mean, 10 years ago, most people did not have a Netflix plus a Spotify plus uh, an iCloud plus a Dropbox plus you know countless other sub- and I'm I'm just talking about ordinary yeah. punters we're on still, the street here. We're still limited to 24 hours a day, and yeah. you're supposed to sleep like eight of them. So you can only consume so much video content, and you can only consume so much of the written word. If if 50 different journals are trying to cover one M and A deal mm. or one celebrity divorce or Right. It just might be too much. You don't need that many ads or subscriptions against, you know, Yeah. go do something else. I'm always fascinated by when talking to people who work in Silicon Valley and in the upper tiers of tech, what kind of media they consume. I mean, I've spoken to people like Patrick Collison and yeah. about that, and he would read things like Ben Thompson's Stratechery, sure. you know, uh, email newsletters like that. He's a very eccentric kind of taste as well, but... Um, from your perspective, seeing as you're sitting here in front of me, what what, what would your typical daily um, media consumption be? Yeah, I mean, I'm you know I'm up at six a.m. I usually get thirty minutes of CNBC to kind of see what the big news stories of the day are. That's um, TV. That's TV. Yeah. I'll listen to uh, the Daily, the New York Times podcast really? like by Michael Barbaro. Yeah. He does an excellent job of just going deep on one story mm-hmm. and interviewing really world class people. Uh, I always read my friend Jason Hirshhorn's Media Redef. He spends hours curating the best stories of the web from the day before. So you'll get everything diverse stories from mm-hmm. The New Yorker to ESPN to individual essays, et cetera. Um, and then I have my, you know, kind of Twitter and Facebook feeds where I'm yeah. kind of scanning the news. And you you ultimately will triangulate on, okay, this seems to be a big story. There's just a lot of SEO heat against this particular headline. Mm-hmm. And, you know, kind of double click on those headlines. But just like everybody else, I find myself sometimes being too lazy and just reading the Twitter headlines and realizing 280 characters does not a story make. Right. Well, you know what, Sander, I think we were out of time, but I'd just like to thank you very much for coming into studio and the very best of luck with um, SurveyMonkey uh, here in Ireland and abroad. And uh, uh, sorry, I forgot to mention, you did actually an interesting survey um, in relation to GDPR yeah. privacy, didn't you? It's kind of interesting well, findings from that. Sure. Today, um, we actually just launched our European data center uh-huh. here in Ireland. Yep. So super important for enterprise customers in Europe who want data sovereignty, want control of their data, don't want it you know, back in the U.S. So having cloud points of presence here with AWS was really important to us. We found that 74% of U.K. residents uh, care deeply about where their data resides. Um, you know, over half of, of Irish residents, you know, had had misgivings about doing business with people who weren't had didn't have a local presence here. So clearly, Europeans care deeply about data sovereignty, control of their data in ways that Americans just don't care about. And I think the trend will move west, and you'll see that that control issue become important to Americans as well. But we think that GDPR has become table stakes, and we celebrate the fact that more people are adherent to 
working with companies who are protecting their data and, and care about that protection. So you got to invest and, and build to, to meet the needs of the European market. Do you, do you think the U.S. eventually will get closer to a GDPR standard? I know lots of people say that GDPR has essentially been exported now in terms of the working practices of many big tech companies, but do, on a, an actual administrative level, do you think it'll make it into the States? I do. I think California's already adopted legislation, which will go into place next year. I don't think it's going to get the same consumer sentiment, but I think IT organizations and companies that have a lot to protect are going to be moving in the same direction of Europe and and putting more restrictions and guidelines on companies that they're working with. So I think it's it's great for ServerMonkey and other companies that are actually investing in protecting consumer data. And cheers to the Europeans for for kind of spreading this worldwide awareness. Well, cheers to Europeans. The final word there to Xander Lurie, uh, Chief Executive of SurveyMonkey. And that's all we have time for this week, folks. Uh, once again, thank you very much to Magnet Networks sponsoring this podcast and connecting businesses virtually anywhere in Ireland. I'll be back with you the same time next week. But until then, bye-bye. The Big Tech Podcast, in proud association with Magnet Networks, connecting businesses virtually anywhere in Ireland.